Let's turn in the Bible to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. The book of Daniel is a book of dark days. The God's people are in Babylon, in exile, and in the first six chapters of Daniel, we follow the story uh, mostly of four faithful exiles, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as most know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But when you get to chapter 7, you may expect more of the same, more stories of heroic faith, but you don't. Things change with chapter 7. The rest of the book, apart from part of uh, chapter 9, is a different type of literature altogether. We've moved from narratives, from story, into apocalyptic literature. Now, you may not recognize that term, but in the Bible, apocalyptic literature uses uh, imagery, sometimes unusual imagery, sometimes, quite frankly, scary imagery in order to communicate a message about the end of the kingdoms of man in this world and the establishment of the eternal and victorious kingdom of God. We find it here, and this is what you find uh, in much of the book of Revelation. And as I thought about this transition from chapters 1 to 6 to chapters 7 to 12, uh, I can't help but think that some of us may have never ventured into this territory for very long. All right, it's like walking into a store you know you don't belong in. You walk in and you're like, this looks very unfamiliar to me. I don't know exactly what to do here, so I'm just going to leave. All right? And so some of you may have just avoided the last six chapters of Daniel uh, altogether. And some of you, because you do, you have to check off these boxes on your Bible reading plan. And so you have muscled your way through them, even though it's just like your eyes glazed over even as you were reading. All right? So some of you, it's been a very, you know, this is where the, the real good part of Daniel has come to an end, and now we get into some stuff I don't even, I don't even know what this is. Uh, lions and, and bears, oh my. I mean, you just, you don't, you don't know what this is. But some of you have been like rubbing your hands ever since Daniel 1, right? And you're like, those first six chapters of Daniel... Those are for the children's Sunday school. But this, this is where it really gets interesting. This is where we go from playing Candyland to playing Clue. All right? We're here to look at all the evidence and solve all the mysteries and fill in all our charts and on and on. Well, I realize that you're both in this room. And uh, I'm hoping that these next weeks will be helpful for those who have been confused by these chapters in the past. And quite honestly, I think they may prove disappointing to those who want every single detail from 7-1 to the end of chapter 12 to be assigned some particular meaning. And the reason why I say that is because I'm I'm not convinced that that's why this was written. 
My goal, you see, in all of preaching, not just in preaching Daniel 7 or in preaching the second half of Daniel, but in preaching in general is to say what God says. And when God originally said this, He said this to particular people. So we have to keep those first people in mind. So if you would imagine that we are a group of Jews, not long after the release from captivity, Cyrus has declared we can go back and rebuild, but the temple is not rebuilt yet. The wall around Jerusalem is not rebuilt yet. So we're sitting in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and these are the words that we hear. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the, of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the, the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him concerning the truth, all, uh, uh, concerning all this. He, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall come a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment." And his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow, humbly asking that by Your Spirit, You would teach us now that You would speak through Your Word to our hearts, that You would encourage us, challenge us, correct us, give us hope for the sake of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. In His name we come to You and pray. Amen. Now for that group of Jews in that synagogue when they heard these words what was it they were to walk away with obviously for us there is 
there is more here because we don't look at this text with just post-exile eyes. We look at this text with post-resurrection eyes. So we don't ignore that. But what is God saying to them that blossoms, as He says it to us, through this text? with the person and work of Jesus in view. And I believe it is this, that God will judge all evil and will give us His kingdom through Jesus. God will judge all evil and give us His kingdom through Jesus. Let's see how this unfolds. First, by looking at the four beasts. Daniel's vision of these four beasts is parallel to Nebuchadnezzar's vision back in chapter 2, though there it was a four, it was, it was, a, it was a, a vision of a statue that had four distinct parts, four-part statue. Both visions point to four kingdoms. However, in chapter 2, it's the greatness of these kingdoms that you need to focus on, the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, all these things. Here it's not so much the greatness and glory of these kingdoms, it is the evil of these kingdoms that comes into view. These are beasts. Now, We will briefly look at each beast, but as we do, don't get lost in the details. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Here's the vision, right? There is the sea before Daniel, and it is going crazy. It is being tossed this way and that way, and the wind is blowing in every direction. It's the very picture of chaos and destruction, and then bit by bit emerging out of the sea come these things one by one. They are fierce. They are hybrids of sorts. They are mutants. Low, angry growls emanate from their throats. Blood stains their mouths from their latest kill, and they don't look like they're slowing down anytime soon on their mission of domination. It's difficult for us in the 21st century because all of our horror films and all of our science fiction films have us desensitized to things like this. We're like, eh, a lion with eagle's wings. Seen it. (laughs) But look how Daniel responds to this in in verse 15. My spirit within me was anxious... And the visions of my head alarmed me. If you had this dream, so would yours. Verse 28, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. You know where that comes from? That's exactly the response that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 to his vision. His thoughts alarmed him and his color changed. We think, oh, how neato. We're going, to look at, we're going to look at all these kingdoms. What a neat thing. And the people who actually saw them, the color is drained from their face because when you see it, it should overwhelm you. It's not something to tinker around with. It's something that we're meant to feel the impact of these beasts. 
And at the same time, they're not merely mythical creatures. They represent kings. The interpreter tells him that, isn't it? Did you notice this? Daniel goes to one of those. He says, uh, so excuse me, uh, what does all this mean? And you get this one sentence answer, right? Well, the four beasts are four kings, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever, which is glorious. That's helpful. But Daniel's like, that's not good enough. Did you see the fourth beast? I want to know more about the fourth beast. And then it goes on from there. But these four beasts represent four kingdoms. Daniel isn't told who they are, though my hunch, my imaginative hunch, is that he knows who the first one is. And he has an idea of who the second one is. But Daniel isn't told. But as history unfolded and we look back, things make a bit more sense. So you see the first beast in verse 4 is this lion with eagle's wings, and its wings are plucked, and it's made to stand upright like a man, and it is given the mind of a man. And this is fairly clearly an image of Babylon. You see, outside the royal palace at Babylon, guarding the doors, if guarding the gates, if you will, were statues of winged lions. Not only that, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar is actually pictured as a lion in some places and pictured as an eagle in other places. And then you have this one who is a beast standing upright like a man and having the mind of man, and that reminds you of what happened back in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar's time as a beast and then having his reason returned to him. But then we go on to the second beast. The second beast is a bear, but not, not a properly proportioned bear, a bear with one side that's higher than the other. It's kind of up on one side, some sort of mutation. There are ribs dangling out of its mouth, maybe like ribs will dangle out of your mouth later on today at your barbecues or whatever it is that you do. But this isn't from, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the great uh, barbecuing of pig meat. This is, this is from destruction, and he's got his marching orders. Arise, devour much flesh. Now, there are two different camps when it comes to where we go from here, but it seems most clear that this is the Medo-Persian Empire. You see, the Persians were more dominant in that duo, and that's why the one is raised up. And we'll see that happen again in chapter 8. It's very explicit in chapter 8. The third beast comes in verse 6, a leopard with four heads and four wings, some kind of creature that is fast and flying, going any which way it wants. And this is a picture of Greece. Alexander the Great attacks Asia Minor in 334 B.C., and within about 10 years, he has completely conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire. And at that mark, at 10 years, he's 32 years old. And when he dies, his kingdom is divided into four, thus the four heads. And then we have this fourth beast, 
in verse 7. And I'll read it in just a moment, but this stands out. This one is unique. There is nothing in the animal kingdom quite like this. If you just do a Google image search, you'll find anything from, you know, basically something that looks like a dinosaur to something that looks like a dragon. There are all kinds of interpretations of this, but we don't have a sketch. We don't, we, we don't, all we have is some details. But I think the point is in those details and not in us assigning it an animal. Do you know why I think that? Because the Bible here doesn't assign it an animal, all right? So, look at verse 7. Just listen. The, the, the language here slows us down so we see each thing. As a, after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." This thing takes out everything in its path. It conquers, it tears apart, it devours all who stand between it and its quest. And this points our minds to Rome, but not quite Rome. It's Rome, but it's not Rome. I mean, it is Rome. I mean, it is this dominance that we see pictured in the beast. Roman armies marching everywhere, stamping out every last bit of the Grecian Empire. Asians and Africans and Europeans all being forced to bow the knee to Caesar. But then it's not quite Rome because... Look at verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, the horns, these ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And the interpretation of this is over in verse 24, as for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom, the fourth beast, came ten kingdoms, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. So we, we see Rome, but we're looking at more than that. We're looking at these other kingdoms, uh, the, the full number of kingdoms, as it were. And out of these prideful kings, rebellious horns, there's one who's different from all the rest, with eyes of intelligence and a mouth of pride. And look at what he does, verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. He blasphemes against God. He persecutes the people of God, which we see in, in uh, verse 21, because Daniel gives us a little more that he didn't say before. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. He's wearing them out. That's what verse 25 says. 
Not only does he blaspheme God, not only does he persecute God's people, he makes himself out to be God. That's what that last phrase means. He, 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 he shall think to change the times and the law. If you go back to chapter 2, you know who changes the times? God. God changes the times. Chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and places kings. And so here we have... We have these ten horns, little h, and out of that comes a horn, capital H. Now for the Christian, as we hear this, can you, ima- can you imagine us being in that synagogue and this being said? Think of the terror. There's going to be more of this. More overrunning of God's people in the future. More persecution to come. It's not all over. But as we look with the New Testament in our hands, we don't see in the New Testament horns, little h, and the horn, capital H. We see antichrists, those who are opposed to Christ, those who deny His truth. There is a spirit of Antichrist in the world and and Antichrist who lead the charge of that spirit. But then there, there are the Antichrists, plural, little a, and then there is the Antichrist, capital A. He is the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, Daniel's vision isn't just about the end of the exile. Daniel's vision isn't just about the rambling on of evil in world history. Daniel's vision is about the end of history itself as we know it. These four beasts reveal the kingdoms of man, these four specific kingdoms, and then, in general, the kingdoms of man. And it reveals them for what they really are, beastly. No matter what kingdoms have arisen, beastliness comes with it at some point and in some form. You don't have to go very far back in, in history to do that. We don't have to go to ancient history. We don't have to go to a medieval history. We just go a hundred years ago. You only have to na- say names like Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot and Idi Amin and Kim Jong-un. You only have to Remember terrorists on airplanes flying into buildings. Why? To conquer and make a kingdom. It's beastly, isn't it? But even here, beastliness rears its ugly head. Look, here we are on July the 4th, and it is a wonderful time to be thankful to God 
for the nation in which we live. And I heard it said recently, and I think very well, that when we think about our history as a nation, we ought not to dabble in hagiography, which means that we make saints of everyone that comes before us. Right? There was, there was no sin. It was all great. Everything in the history of the United States is, Ameri- is wonderful. And all the parts that aren't, we're just going to shove them in the closet like when company comes over. We're just going to put those pieces in the closet, uh, you know, and pull out, make sure we pull out all the really pretty shiny pieces. We don't dabble in hagiography, but we also don't dabble in hamartiography, which means that everything that has happened to this point has been awful. Our country should just burn to the ground because sin is involved and because sinners have demonstrated their sinfulness in quite awful ways. What we need to be is thoughtful and aware of that which has gone wrong and thankful for what has gone right. Thankful for, where, for the freedom that we have. Thankful for the ability to worship like this. Concerned to make sure that freedom such as this remain protected in as much as it would depend on us. But this doesn't mean there's no beastliness in the United States. We're absolutely beastly when it comes to babies in the womb. Thinking of them as obstacles. That these are things to be devoured by abortion clinics in the name of career or convenience. That's beastly. Even in, even in a wonderful place where we can start our own businesses and do, do all of our capitalistic things, did you know that companies can act quite beastly in the midst of it? That companies can look at employees as a, 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 a commodities to just chew up and then spit out. Use them up for all they're worth and then leave them. And if you're over a certain age and needing to start again, well, you may as well apply to be a greeter at Walmart because your experience makes you too expensive. You may be really wise and really great for the company, but we'd rather chew up and spit out some young guys and ladies and save the cash. That or we'd like to ship some of our operation to a place where we can basically pay zero and expand our profit margin by hundreds and hundreds of percent. Look, if you, if, you, if you think that there's any perfect system, it's all, got, it's all got beast raging on the inside. We're beastly in our relationships, aren't we? We just want our way. So I will devour you in the name of my kingdom. Some people devour through their verbal manipulation, and some people devour through the use of physical force. But I will get what I want. Human beings turn into beasts when they want to advance their own kingdom at all costs. The world is an evil, beastly place. This is what 
sin does. And these beasts in Daniel 7 are ferocious, they're bloodthirsty. And at the end of verse 8, you may think there's just more of them coming up out of the sea. This is never going to end. But something happens. When you get to verse 9, and there we see, secondly, the Ancient of Days. Who is this Ancient of Days, this one who is eternal? It is God Himself. Isn't that interesting? When, you, when, you got to, when we read and we got to verse 9, did you kind of have an internal sigh of relief at that point? Because if all you do is look at the beastliness of the world, you know what you'll do? You'll sit up all night wringing your hands. You will, be, you will drown in anxiety. You will drown in worry. You will drown in depression. Friends, we have got in the beastliness of life, in the darkest of days, we cannot forget to keep the ancient of days in view. And here he is. And we see first that he is sovereign. In the midst of this chaos, this confusion, the noise, the growling, the blood, the ribs, everything, the ancient of days sits down. <laughs> He's, he's, not, he's not pacing. He's not wringing his hands. He's not racking his brain for a solution to the beast problem. He's sitting down. In other words, he's not like Daniel. And quite frankly, he's not like us. Always anxious in our minds and our colors always changing and we're alarmed. God is seated he has absolute power and absolute control over every molecule in the universe at every moment of human history. So quite frankly, he doesn't even need to get up out of his seat. He doesn't even have to bother exerting himself like that. What a God this is. He is calm and he is collected because he is king. Of all the kings, he's the king of the kings. Not only is he sovereign, though, that could be terrifying, but he's also pure. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. The, the beastliness that is all around, he is untouched by it, unstained. There's nothing beastly about the Ancient of Days. He is pure, free from sin, free from malicious intent, only good, only glorious, only holy, holy, holy. He is judge. 
We see this in the fire. Do you know there, there's fire three times here? His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Deuteronomy 24 tells us the Lord your God is a consuming fire. But we don't just see judgment in the imagery of fire. It's actually explicit. Look at the end of verse 10. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And having opened the books and cross-examined the beasts, God executes the sentence. Verse 11 and 12 I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, dead and deposed. Verse 26, the court shall sit in judgment, and his, that is the horn's, dominion shall be taken away. You see, if you noticed with the beast dominion is given to them. Things are given to them. They're given to them. But they're only given to them for a time. And now it's being taken away by the one who is sovereign and pure. Now many people bristle at the idea of God being judge because what what we want is kind of an impotent grandfatherly type figure who will scoop us up and only say wonderful things about us. But is that really what we want out of God? When it comes to the Stalins and the Hitlers and the Pol Pots and the terrorists and the Kim Jong-uns and the child molesters and the sexual abusers, is that what we really want? Or is there something in us that says this is wrong and has to be dealt with and quite frankly, the end of life just doesn't seem like enough? We want judgment on evil. The problem is we want judgment on evil when we deem that evil needs to be judged. On those people. Not not on me. Not my evil. Not on my desire to be king. And yet, God's judgment is universal. He will not tolerate the evil of the beasts. And everybody said... Amen. I'll try again. He will not tolerate the evil of the beasts, and everybody said, but the reason he won't tolerate the evil of the beasts is because he won't tolerate evil, period, in anyone at any time. And so here on his throne is the answer to the need for justice in the ancient of days. And all the kingdoms face the judge, and no kingdom will remain. No kingdom but one, God's kingdom. And on the throne of that kingdom, we see lastly the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now immediately this one should stand out from all the other ones. Do you remember how they were described? Like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. If you just summarize the fourth one, like nothing you ain't ever seen. But then we come here 
And there's one like a son of man. He is a human being. Now that's curious because all of the beasts were meant to represent human beings. But their sin made them beastly. So here we have one who is distinct from them, who is human and looks human, but is untouched by sin. He is not beast-like at all. In fact, you might say he is the most human of all the humans. He is the perfect human. But the Son of Man isn't merely human. He is also God. Notice he arrives with the clouds. And in the Bible, friends, there's only one who arrives on the clouds. We read it this morning, Psalm 104. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. Not only that, he is worshipped. Look at verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. They serve him. The verb for, uh, serve doesn't mean that they're just under his authority. It's an Aramaic word that was used to speak of service to a God. It is a word that indicates worship. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, tell me, who does God share worship with? Nobody. Who will He share His glory with? Nobody. You mean God's not just going to say one day to a mere human being, hey, everybody, I know I said I would never share my glory with another, but you should worship Him too. Is that what will happen? Never. God is the only one worthy of worship, and so here before Daniel is one who is worshipped, and His kingdom is eternal. Second half of verse 14, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall be destroyed. If you've paid attention up till now, if you were just reading through Daniel, you know whose kingdom is described that way in Daniel? God's and God's alone. So here is one who is clearly human, the most human of all humans, and also divine. I taught taught, um, Bible uh, at at my son's uh, school for a bit. And when we, you know, in middle school, they were in middle school at the time, and when you're in middle school, you, you know, you just want to be like normal, right? You want to be the abnormal kid. You want to be the normal one, right? Uh, and it's interesting because every single kid in the class is hoping they are part of the normal ones. Um, and I told them one day, none of you are normal. You just get it right out, just get it right out there. No need to mess around. None of you are normal. Did you know that from God's perspective, there is only one normal human being in the entire history of the world? And that is Jesus of Nazareth. This is what it looks like to be human. And here he is on the clouds, both God and man. Can you, can you imagine Daniel's face as he sees this? He knows. Can you imagine in the synagogue with these Jews? We're we're reading, we've read Daniel 7, and here is this one. Can you just imagine the confusion? There's steam coming out people's ears because there's no way I'm getting this. 
What do you mean? What do you mean? But we as Christians, we read Daniel 7 and we read of one who is fully human. And we read of one who is fully God. And a smile comes over our faces. Because we've seen the second act of this play. We've read the rest of the book. We've seen the end of the movie. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of Man. And Jesus picks up this phrase so that in, in His ministry, and makes it Himself, we read it in Luke 19, didn't we? The Son of Man came to seek and to save. And then in his trial in Mark chapter 14, the high priest asks him directly, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus answers, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And following that, Jesus is crucified and he's killed. Why? Well, I mean, if you look at Daniel 7, when the Son of Man shows up, He is served. But Jesus wants to clarify that's still in the future because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The sin that turns men into beasts comes down on Jesus. It is put on Him. We are stained by it and enslaved by it, and He paid for it. He paid the ransom for us so that we could be set free from sin. And on the third day, He rose from the dead, and before Jesus ascends to heaven, He echoes Daniel chapter 7 again. He looks at His disciples and He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Jesus is the one like a son of man. Jesus will reign forever. Jesus is king of all kings. And the beauty of it for us who belong to him is that we will reign with him. Verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and in all dominions shall serve and obey Him. You have this picture at the end of Revelation of all the glory of the kings coming in, being given to Jesus. And in our dark days, right here, right now, in the beastliness of the 21st century, the truth of God's coming judgment and His kingdom and of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, reigning, and coming again gives us hope. The truth that God will judge evil and give us the kingdom through His Son gives us hope. Hope. That's what we walk away from Daniel 7 with. Hope. We may better understand the beast, but the beasts aren't the point. The Ancient of Days is the point. The Son of Man is the point. Hope in dark days 
is the point. Because as we close our Bibles and we leave this place, we go back into the war zone of a beastly life. And we need to know that while the battle rages on, the victory is sure. We need to know that while beasts still growl and the enemy still prowls around us like a lion seeking whom he may destroy, the Ancient of Days is seated and sovereign, and their judgment is certain. Revelation 20, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And friends, after that, books are opened, and there is this eternal division between uh, different groups of mankind. There are those who will live and reign with the Son of Man, with Jesus Christ, those who have trusted in Him to save them, those whose names are written in His book of life, and those who have refused, rejected Him, raged against Him, those who will face the same end as the beasts and the devil. Where will you be on that day? The Son of Man came to seek and to save. The Son of Man gives hope in our darkest days. Those who are lost come to Him and find mercy. Would you come to Him and find mercy today? Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. If you take these words seriously, you cannot simply walk away. It will affect you somehow. May we keep this matter in our hearts as we enter in to these dark days. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the hope that you give us. We are thankful that your word is realistic about the evil in our world, about the evil that we will face, about the evil we battle even within ourselves. Oh God, we are thankful for the Son of Man. We are thankful that there is a kingdom marked by purity and holiness and joy and peace and righteousness. And we are thankful that the Son of Man came and sought and saved us. And we pray, God, that we would see the Son of Man seeking and saving those around us through our gospel witness. We pray, O oh God, that we will be strengthened by this chapter as puzzling as it can be, strengthened to walk with hope through the darkest of days, knowing that you will judge all evil and that we will live forever in your kingdom because of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.